to kind of like give a cop-out answer. I, I have no clue what my relationship with my body is because I'm just starting on that journey. I, I have ideas and I will go deeper into how it was growing up. But I just thought I start off with saying, I have no clue. I have no clue. This is a complete new journey. And I'm, I'm literally asking my friends. Um, I'm texting my girlfriends like, hey, how do you love your body? How do you affirm yourself? Hello, I'm Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that there are others who are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Mish. I have wanted to interview Mish for a while now and was so glad that she was able to join me for this episode. I have learned a lot from her in our relatively brief friendship, and she has certainly helped me with my podcast. While I've never advertised anything here before, I've wanted to do that for her podcast for a while. Mish hosts a podcast called The Models We Live By, where she talks with guests about the way we are affected by our mental models and how we can work on changing them. I've listened to every episode and recommend the same to you. You can find her podcast on whatever podcast platform you use or through the website themodelswelliveby.com. In this episode on this podcast... Mish talks about her intersecting identities as a Jewish and Christian Asian woman, as well as how she has learned to work with her difficult upbringing and emotions. Content warnings for talk about bottom surgery, sexual abuse, incest, physical abuse, mental health, emotional abuse, extreme anger, homophobia, and transphobia. In this episode, Mish mentions the war in Israel in the late 80s, And I recognize I'm releasing this episode less than a week after the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel. This episode was originally recorded on August 31. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here is my interview with Mish. All right, here we are. Here we are. Um, So yeah, my first question always is, how do you and I know each other? How do you and I know each other? That's a while ago. Well... In retrospect, not a lot, a lot of time, because it was at Q Christian Conference. And I remember you and I were attending this transgender session. Am I saying that right? I think it was, mm-hmm. I thought I was signing up for this session where trans people think about trans things. <laughs> but it was a big circle where everybody shared what was going on with their life. And I remember you said uh, the question was, who are you and what are you bringing today? And you said, 
My name is... What name do you use in public again? Eden. You still use... Okay, good. My name is Eden and I'm bringing a bow tie. So I'm like, I dig that. I like it. Let's go. <laughs> and here I am with, with bow tie. That's right. And the next morning, I only stayed two days at the conference. So the next morning, I wanted to have a hefty breakfast. Um, but apparently nobody at the conference wanted. So I sat there alone. And then as I was leaving, you came in and we started having a deeper conversation. And that was super cool. That's how we know each other. So that is not even that long. I say long ago, but that's eight months ago. It was in January. Right? Since then, we had so many talks. We talked pretty regularly, I'd say. Yeah, no, uh, I remember one that hotel had great, like a great uh, continental breakfast. Continental by that they meant like <laughs> they had locks and cream cheese and croissants. Everything. Everything. Yeah. It was really delicious and. And yeah, you were you were sitting there and you're finishing up your coffee and yeah, we chatted for a bit. I don't even remember exactly what we chatted about, although both of our podcasts might have come up because That's I'm funny. now uh using the Riverside uh program to record this, which is what you recommended that I do. That's right. That's right. So we did talk about podcasts. I think my podcast was, I was one season in, right? We were both rookies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's keep it with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember, yeah, us meeting very fondly. I remember that sort of trans affinity group is is i think what it was called meaning those who identify as trans um trans or non-binary and i remember what you said in there was about how we like we trans folk should not have to just be satisfied or or just be resigned to scraps yeah yeah so Pretty like the crumbs from the table one. yes yeah I, I am pretty aggressive about that opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I was surprised that it felt like the majority of the group were like, yeah, I work for a church. They're a little bit clumsy, but I still work for them. Or I work for a church. They're not really affirming. So I just hide who I am and I try to work from the inside. And I've been in ministry for so long and I'm like, mm, I don't think that works that way mm. um and i am worried that the trans community is holding themselves back mm. as in like if we stay in those spaces what are we potentially missing out on and mm. who are we actually helping but it was also a very rough moment i remember that i didn't enjoy the conference not because qcf is 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 that what it's called qcf mm -hmm. queer christian, christian. Federation. Fellowship. Federation. Fellowship. <laughs> Federation. I was like, I what does F stand for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I just remember that I, I was not feeling good. So the, the conference, obviously very good, but I was not feeling good. And I had a lot of residual saltiness from 
staying in those spaces too long, trying to work from the inside, both before I came out as trans and after I came out as trans, I was like, no, no more scraps. It felt like a word from God. Hmm. And then I come to that conference and everybody was like saying the opposite. (laughs) I remember no hard feelings, but yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I had just a few months before that stopped going to a conservative, traditional, whatever you want to call it, church, and started going to an affirming church. Um, and I, I think, you know, in contrast to you, I'm a bit more of like working, working from the inside, and we're like I have a lot of friends who are non-affirming, and certainly family members. Um, but I think what I think I, I think I was sort of moving a little bit away from just having that consuming my whole life, being yeah. like the majority of people around me were non-affirming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you you say something really beautiful about private versus public. Yeah, yeah. So there is this concept that it's an older philosophical concept of what is part of the public realm and what is part of the private realm and stuff like that so i kind of lean into that but for me personally very practically mean is that i have a private realm and i have a public realm publicly i'm on instagram i make reels i write stuff i am a professor you know i can handle with some I can handle a lot there. I have very thick skin. As a matter of fact, I'm very passionate about bridge building. So when people hear my stance on bridge building and non-alienation in combination with no scraps, they get (laughs) confused. And that's because there's this distinction. So in the public realm, I have thick skin. I do build bridges. I do believe in Mm non-alienation. However, in my private sphere, my private realm, I do not accept anything but 100% support. And I believe that private realm is not just my family, but it's also the close ring of friends that I have. And because I am a person that is pretty spiritual, I'm Jewish, but we have an interfaith household. So my wife is Christian. We go to churches. If I go to a church, that's a private realm thing. That is not my work or my profession it, it it is not it has nothing to do with me growing professionally it only has to me growing personally that's what i take out of a church mm-hmm. so my church unless i work for the church so my church the church that i go to the church that i church at has to be 100% safe otherwise it doesn't fit in the private realm and i know that's a very harsh statement but i've been I've been executing the private public realm thingy thingy and no scraps rule for a while right now. And I really, really feel good about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I actually think, you know, you've just said that you are Jewish and some things about yourself. My next question is about or just asking you to introduce yourself. Um, what what do you want people to know about you? What um what do you find that is important about you? Ooh, that's an interesting question. 
Uh, so I always have these weird uh, philosophical answers to anything. <laughs> so I just say, let's just say, let's first things first. My name is Mish, like Kish, in case you're wondering how to pronounce that. And uh, I like to subdivide my life into who who I am as part of a vocation and as part of an occupation. So let's start with the superficial stuff first. I am very fortunate that my vocation and my occupation overlap. So mm-hmm. I am I am a professor. Uh I am a public figure for the lack of better words. I hate that mm-hmm. moniker, but it's the way it is. So I I am in the public realm where I speak and where I make reels and where I'm being interviewed on podcasts, but I also have my own podcast and I am a management consultant specifically for faith organizations. Um, As such, I work for nonprofits. I work for churches. Um, I'm always interested in deals uh, with seminaries and stuff like that. So that's all my occupation. And my occupation, like I said earlier, is in line with my vocation. So Mm -hmm. I would say my vocation, my three vocations that I feel called to do, in my case by God, but I feel that people don't need God to find their vocation, is Mm -hmm. author, speaker, and thought leader. So they Mm kind of fit within together. Author as in like, I, I, I don't particularly enjoy writing but i enjoy writing my thoughts down and trying to make them as palatable as possible uh i enjoy speaking whether it's teaching uh or whether it's on a stage to do something like that or back in the days when i was a pastor you know stuff like that um i a thought leader because I very nichely specialize in leadership in faith organizations. And a long time ago, I was going through one of those scientific databases. And the way that scientific databases work is that you search through queries, just like Google, but then you have more search bars. So one search bar is the topic that you use, then you use another search query, and that's the secondary topic. So in my case, it would be if I try to find research in my field, it would be DEI and leadership and churches. That would be a search query. And the only thing that comes up, you have a question? (laughs) Uh, What does DEI stand for? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. Um, and the only thing that comes up after I hit search is a study from 1840 made done by a Jesuit group. And funnily enough, it's uh, uh, female researchers. But there are no other researchers that are studying inclusive and resident leadership in the context of church leadership, seminaries, mm. and faith organizations. So that's why I'm saying thought leader, because there is not a lot of work done in this space. Hmm. You know, I, I find myself curious. You said you were Jewish, uh, but you live in an interfaith household. So you, you go mm-hmm. to church, your wife is a Christian, but I noticed that your work, you've only mentioned churches. Do you ever work with synagogues? I have worked with synagogues in the past, but, um, 
here's the thing with synagogues. The in Christianity you have denominations, and you could say that in Judaism we have denominations, but it's a little bit more complex. You kind of mm-hmm. like subdivide them more in orders of religiosity. Mm. So where where ultra conservative is the most uh, ultra ultra orthodox, sorry, is the most conservative. And then after that comes modern orthodox, which is also pretty conservative. And then you get to a large group, which is the majority of Jews in the world who Mm. are maybe conservative, but they're affirming by default. So you have conservatives, which I know is a very confusing Mm. term, but Mm. conservatives are only conservatives compared to the next group, which is reform or liberal Jews. Both Mm. those groups are affirming. And then you have even more liberal, if you will, reconstructionist Jews Mm. or unaffiliated Jews. Most of those are are affirming. So only within the group of ultra-Orthodox and modern Orthodox, you'll find Jews that are not affirming, and then it is still complex. So you could still run into an ultra-Orthodox ultra Jews, and I'm a trans woman. They would say, mm. huh, okay, so I guess that means that the law for women uh, needs to be applied to you. So they're more interested mm. on, like, what kind of law should I follow versus if if it's eth- ethically permissible for me to be a woman. So mm. there is... There is work to do. I'm not saying that there's not work to do within uh, Judaism, but within Judaism, there's more uh, comfort with ambiguity. And Mm -hmm. um, within Christianity, there is more polarization. (laughs) Mm. So it's within Christianity. I was looking at a study from white protestants and you can divide white protestants in mainline white protestants and evangelical protestants if you go to for example research centers like uh like prp or pew they Mm. they define them like so and then you can see that the majority of white evangelical protestants are against people like me like trans people Mm -hmm. and the majority of mainline protestants both groups are whites in the control group are for my existence so Mm. there is a huge difference in perception and you can't really nail it down based on uh the location over all like for example overall people are transphobic or all urban people are friendly to trans people just not how it works within christianity there's more more of a variable variance uh I, I mean there that is really hard to to pin down so i find myself attracted to churches to work with churches hmm. uh f- for starters because i i do believe that jesus is the messiah hmm. which is which is uh perhaps controversial to say as mm-hmm. a jew but i am not a christian i am specifically jewish um so the the reason why i work with churches is there's so much work to do there Mm. so we have we have ultra not i should not say ultra because um because i just use that with uh within orthodoxy let's just say we have proper conservative evangelical groups 
that mm. don't even want to have the conversation about accepting trans people in their congregation, uh, celebrating gay weddings or mm. <laughs> what have you, or even talk about race and talk about intersectionality. But there is a ginormous group of people that really wants to be affirming, but they have no clue how to do that. And uh, the way they go about it is typically very clumsy, is mm. oftentimes more hurtful than conservative evangelical church, because then you at least know what to expect. You go to an evangelical conservative church, you will get rejected, no surprise. But if you go to a church that is on their website, we welcome all mm. and we allow gay weddings or so, you have high expectations. So if you get hurt by them in the same way as that conservative church, mm -hmm. for me personally, that hurts more. Mm -hmm. So I feel that there's more work to be done within the Christian churches. That's kind of mm -hmm. like a super long answer to a short mm -hmm. question. I, I love it though. And, and I was just thinking, you said, you know, talking about, you know, trans people and gay marriage and race and <laughs> you are Asian trans woman who is a lesbian married to a woman yeah, so you like exactly. check off like a number of these like difficult within church <laughs> yeah. uh, circumstances and also like the interfaith thing of being Jewish as well complicates yeah. things um, yeah yeah exactly yeah I, I often hear my say when people say, okay, describe yourself in one sentence. Okay, a Jesus-loving, Jewish, Indonesian, trans woman. Yep, that's a lot of intersectionalities. Mm. Um, lesbian, trans woman, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it has some consequences to, 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 to have somebody that is BIPOC, that is AAPI, that is trans, that is Jewish, that is so many intersections that is then also willing to work to talk about what implications that has for for faith organizations specifically. It's I think, again, if you look at Pew Research data, if you're agnostic or atheist or unaffiliated, these are categories that I did not mm -hmm. make up. These are categories that... Pew Research makes up. You can see that they don't struggle with my existence. Mm. It is specifically within Protestant Christianity that I work. I work with with, with some Roman Catholic uh, affiliations, but also within Roman Catholicism. While their system does not accept me, the people mm. are more accepting. Super interesting topic for the record <laughs> yeah well i think that's true with queer matters like generally as well as that the sort of institution seems to be against but there is there are a number of catholics and like sort of little i guess i wouldn't call it offshoots but like groups that yeah. are accepting and i don't know enough about the catholic church to know that world but i've interacted with some Catholic, sort of more lapsed Catholic uh, queer people who mm -hmm. sometimes have connection back there. Um, yeah. Also, just sort of funny thing. I don't remember if I ever told you, but my parents originally wanted to be 
Bible translators in Indonesia. Um, of course. They want, yeah, they want to be <laughs> missionaries there. So uh, they both know Bahasa Indonesia. Um, wow. That was their secret language that they would speak ar wow. around us kids. So, yeah. That is super cool. Well, I have complicated feelings towards missionaries of course mm, but mm -hmm. yes it is super cool that they know the language let me clarify there <laughs> yeah so i i grew up with gado gado and um yes let's and sate go. and peanut sauce because oh, of that <laughs> so um, oh that's so funny that's i would so have funny. i could have grown, grown up there if they'd gotten a visa um but anyway they, they yeah. did not they couldn't yeah my wife has traumas from Gado Gado. I did not grow up with my parents. Uh, starting 14, I grew up in a foster system. But uh, one day I brought my wife to my parents because we mm. kind of like started restoring relationship. And my mother made Gado Gado and Kim did not like it at all. But they like dunked the entire portion of rice and peanut sauce and all the veggies on her plate and looked at her and kim mm. felt like i gotta eat it all because otherwise misha's parents are gonna hate me <laughs> mm. so she's like yeah yeah indonesian food great with the peanut stuff yeah <laughs> uh, well i'm sure this is gonna come up in this next section because you're just talking about your parents and the foster system and all that complicated stuff um so i'm, I'm going to get to the the meat of our interview which is uh, about how you relate to your body and so yeah mm -hmm. i just asked like how has that relationship been how have your experiences and identities affected that relationship yeah that is a really loaded question for trans people in a, in mm -hmm. a good way <laughs> so looking working a little bit backwards i remember that i was having a networking event with some peers academic peers and we were sitting there but i i didn't know who they were gonna be so what i do when i'm not certain if the environment is safe for my trans identity i um I put even more makeup on and mm. I dress extra fancy. I go, I am already feminine, I th I think, but I go mm -hmm. 10 times more feminine. So I went in, had my prettiest clothes on, had my nicest indistinguishable makeup on. My 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 hair was absolutely perfect. And I sit there. And within half an hour, I forget that I look that way. Within half an hour, I think that everybody sees a sweaty guy mm. at the table. And it is so interesting because I feel so at home in my body. I feel so at home as a woman. And when I came home and I looked in a mirror, I was like, oh, damn, I look cute. So mm. what what is even going on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, really? Am I am I thinking there at the moment? What is my relationship with my body? How what do I believe about my body? Mm. And I notice that it's different. Um 
when I'm in unsafe spaces mm. all of a sudden i default to old behavior i feel like oh maybe i should sit a little bit more masculine mm. uh, maybe i should lower my voice or forget about my target voice altogether and uh, and that's literally something that has this has been a couple of months ago we may have even talked about this so this is the main topic of my therapy sessions right now mm. how what is my relationship with my body? And then going a little bit further back uh, in March, in April, I had bottom surgery and I somehow miscalculated how big of a positive mostly effect it mm. would have on my psyche. Mm. I realized that certain traumatic events in my life and, and just regular good old anxiety that every American has to deal with, I was not feeling because mm -hmm. I completely blocked it out by white knuckling through life mm -hmm. because I was in, in a body that my psyche rejected. So I constantly, in order to get to base level, I had to get to, I'm, I'm using my hands here for the people <laughs> who are listening. Nobody can see that, but I'm using my hand. Like to get to base level, I had to do so much work. I had to do so much white knuckling and so much work that I didn't have time to even deal with the regular stuff that the good old American is dealing with. So a couple of weeks after my surgery, I started noticing that there was such a hefty weight off my shoulders. And then, you know, I feel things that I never felt, like common anxiety. I've never felt common anxiety. Mm. And I felt things like, oh, wow. For example, a thing that was very relevant in my therapy sessions now is my relationship with my mother and how much I disappointed I am uh, I was and am in my mother and how she raised me and how I mm. wanted her to raise me. So it is interesting that I am, to kind of like give a cop-out answer, I, I have no clue what my relationship with my body mm. is because I'm just starting on that journey. I, I have ideas and I will mm. go deeper into how it was growing up, but I just thought I start mm. off with saying I have no clue. I have no clue. This is a complete new journey. Um, and I'm I'm literally asking my friends. Um, I'm texting my girlfriends like, hey, how do you love your body? Mm. How do you affirm yourself? And people are like giving, either giving me super great answers or they're like, what are you? <laughs> do you need this, Mish? Because you look so confident and mm. stuff like that. I'm like, oh, uh, well, I could actually use... A little bit of help there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, big part of the reason that I do this podcast, this topic, is because I wonder. I'm curious. Um, mm -hmm. I I think I relate to that. Like, I'm going to say it a little more strongly. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what yeah. the fuck <laughs> is is yes. all of this? I'm I'm pointing to my body here and. <laughs> And the, you said, you know, now that you're comfortable in your body, all these things are coming up for you. Yeah. And I know a little differently, but, you know, I've said 
couple times on this podcast, you know, all of the things happened in my life at the same time. I was gaining sobriety. I, and I was having a mental breakdown and I was realizing I was trans and like dealing with trauma, like all at the same time. Yay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, and was not able to white knuckle it anymore. It was just. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. That's. Isn't it fascinating what our body can handle and then what our body refuses? Yeah. I feel that not being able to white knuckling knuckle it is your body demanding to be loved. Mm. Yeah. I I have a physical therapy, pelvic floor physical therapy. Uh, which is, of course, sort of complicated for me being trans. And I've had Mm -hmm. a real journey with that. And I think one of the best questions that my PT has asked or, or has sort of recommended that I ask myself is like going to that pain and being like, what are you telling me? Like, what Mm -hmm. is it that you were trying to tell me about? Cause most of the time I'm like, I don't, I don't like you. I don't want you to be here. Go away instead of right. the curiosity of asking, like, what's going on? Yeah. 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 Oof. Yeah, that reminds me way before. So I had two surgeries, a bottom surgery. And in September, I had an orchiectomy, which is removal of testicles. If you are... Uh, male identifying and listening to this podcast right now, I am sorry. Um, and <laughs> it was freeing for me. But before that, we actively asked the question. Like, I had to go there. Can I be a woman? And this is different for everybody. Let me really, really be clear up front. This is for every trans person different. I wanted to discover, can I be fully woman feel fully woman i should say while having my male genitals can i learn to love them as feminine pieces Mm. the first time i asked that question i thought that's a ridiculous question Mm. male genitals can they be viewed as female until i learned yeah yeah you can definitely have that conversation in my case it didn't work Mm. (laughs) right in my case i had to like say okay Let's um let's still move on with surgery, but I didn't want to move on with surgery until I had that question uh, answered. And I think it's so much pressure by this social contract, if you will, of like those body parts are part of a gender which which I understand from a medical diagnosis or uh, you need to do something about that because you have a certain condition. I understand it, how how it's handy from a medical perspective, Mm. but I don't understand how it's helpful from a social understanding. I don't understand why we would connect genitals to gender. I think gender is only, I'm mixing up things. I know I'm too old for the distinction between sex and gender. So I should say sex 
Mm. I, I understand that sex is handy medically, but I don't think it's helpful at, at all to, 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 to do anything with that besides that. Because mm. I now know multiple trans women who are 100% women, not 98, because they choose to keep their genitals. They are 100% women because they had that conversation with themselves. And mm-hmm. they came to the realization, yeah, I totally can see that as a female part, as a female body part. Mm. Yeah, this uh, makes me think of, I remember, what was it? It was a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, I asked you and our mutual friend, Billy, who's also been on this podcast, I was asking you to, what do you think of the term same sex either attraction or marriage uh, in terms of because, you know, you being uh, married to your wife, it isn't technically same sex, right? It's same gender. Um, Yeah. Yeah, And you, you mentioned in that sort of text thread, you mentioned, uh, let me know if you are comfortable with this or not. You mentioned that you, uh, with intersex. And I was wondering about that impact on your life. Yeah, no, it's more a a a thought process. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to insult the intersex community, but so let me say that up front. But mm-hmm. at some point, uh, when you are formed, your body uh, goes a certain route. Your external body goes a cer- certain route. Hmm. And I've always wondered, that's why I'm going to get tested for mm-hmm. for intersex, because there were lots of markers during my life that made me think, huh, <laughs> makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always wondered, okay, if it's possible to be born uh, intersex, that is, again, a physical manifestation of something that we have socially came to accept as sex. So you have two sexes, if you will. Mm. How, how far have we researched? Not far. That's the answer for the record. How far have we researched that same process psychologically? So... If you if you are born with male genitals and you happen to identify as a man as well, what happens there psychologically? Why is your psyche latching onto that sex and good for that person? They don't have to go through mm-hmm. the entire thing that you and I have to go through, right? That's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. But. But what are the odds that that's also whatever happens um, anatomically with intersex people? What are the odds that something like that is also happening Mm. psychologically? That's my big question. I have no answer for this because it has not been researched. Mm. I I doubt that we can research this because we cannot survey babies. Um, Mm. We cannot monitor... um, 
we cannot monitor the psyche of a baby in utero. But it's a, an intriguing thought because I'm like, why do we just assume that the only thing that's a def- defining factor uh, for sex is anatomy? And I can't get over that thought. I can't get over that thought that that's one day the earliest people that's decided on, let's call this sex, that, that, that we just accept that, that we just say, okay, the only thing that defines sex is anatomy. I'm, I'm way more convinced, again, this is not proven, this is purely anecdotal, this is not even an hypothesis, but I am way more prone to believe the thought that's the same process that happens to intersex people anatomically is also happening happening psychologically. Why else can I just not would I not just be satisfied in the body that I'm in? Why mm-hmm. else am I 100% psychologically 100% a woman, but anatomically at birth my body chose a different path or so. Mm. So obviously this brings up tons and tons of questions about the nature of gender and the nature of sex and um, how we just hold up a baby in the air and the doctor scream, it's a boy, no blood testing, no hormone testing, nothing, right? That's the mm. only only defining factor of why somebody is a boy or a girl at birth which is a question that i think the medical community needs to answer now what do we do with that is that even is that even helpful and how much how much in those early years do we put these roles that fit with certain genders if you will on our children how how damaging is that for you and me it has been excruciatingly damaging Mm. i was a little girl and when i asked my parents hey do you think um what do you think of trans people they they go to hell right that's a quest i'm certain that thousands if not millions of trans people in the world have heard that same answer Mm. from their parents right it's excruciatingly damaging to trans people that are that are all like, wait, what the fuck is going on? Just like you said, I, I don't understand. I know that I'm a woman, but I look at my anatomical body and something is not adding up. I have dysphoria about certain body parts. Mm-hmm. I have dysphoria about certain things in my body, in my biology. Mm-hmm. Oof. That's a long, long conversation that I don't have actual answers for. Everything I just said is literally brain farts and <laughs> ponderings and stuff like that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, well, I was just sort of curious, um, what language did you use when you asked the, your parents that question? I didn't use the word transgender. Yeah. Um, um, but I would say things like if I would be if I would like to be a girl Mm. that's the language that I used and you know my grandma allowed me to wear dresses she somehow didn't care different culture my my grandmother is fully Indonesian Mm. um so is my mother but my mother grew up in 
the Netherlands for the longest part of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I know, I know that within Indonesia, within let's just say Southeast Asian islands and stuff like that, there is more of a uh, acceptance towards multiple gender identities, if you mm-hmm. will. I'm not going to call it two-spirit because that term is taken, right? But it is similar to two-spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, and within Indonesia, there there is some, not not a lot, not as much as other cultures. So maybe that's why my grandmother was like not worried about it. Like if Mish wants to play with dresses, then Mish gets to play with dresses. Um, but I did, I I do remember every time it came up. Like if if my uh my cousin would get dresses, I would ask why does she get dresses and why can't I? Mm. Well, because you're a boy and to think anything else is sinful. That's kinda like the mm. context in which that came up. Mm. Was your were you raised Jewish? Very I was raised very inconsistent so i was born in a pentecostal commune and whenever i say Mm. pentecostal commune people say that's probably figure of speech right no but (laughs) i mean i was born in a pentecostal commune i mean the church community that we belong to was called pniel and um they bought a city blocks a city block downtown Amsterdam, mm. and they not only had the church service there every Sunday, but they also lived there. Mm. So, not everybody from that church. Some people drove there uh, from long and far, but it took me a long time. Like my brother and I still have this conversation where my brother is not completely on board with calling it a cult. And I'm like, that was a cult. <laughs> that was absolutely a cult. It was a, it was very extreme in their faith expressions. It was very extreme in certain things. Like I was just talking about this the other day. My, my, my son is seven year old and he had a scare. He wrote, he read a book about vampires. And when I put him to bed, he freaked out. I've never seen him mm. like this before. He freaked out, held me. He said, Ima, which is what my son calls me, which means mama in Hebrew. Um, he held me and said, I'm so scared. I'm like, why are you scared? And he's, mm. I read a book on the online library from my school, and it was about vampires and what if they're real. The reason why I'm telling this story, because I'm like, listen, I'm just going to lay next to you and whatever you need. Keep all the lights on. My parents did not take that serious because when I had those experience of extreme fear as kids have, right? Uh, one of the elders would come and said, oh, Mish, you saw an angel. This is a good thing. That's what I mean with their faith and their beliefs were very, very restrictive on how they uh, approach their kids. I, I don't think that's a healthy thing mm-hmm. that an elder has to be brought in to say something. So that church was led by uh, Uncle Pete, <laughs> I guess. That's what mm-hmm. they called him. That was the main guy. And uh, yeah, oh my everything. It was definitely a cult. And uh, 
But when I was five years old, we moved because my father had a vision of a dove flying through a star of David. And he heard a voice that said, go back home, something like that. I'm butchering the story, but I don't really care because (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like, this is what happened. And he, along the same time, discovered that he was Jewish. He never knew that he was Jewish. But one day he found some records of the Van Essen family, which is uh, the last name of of my father. And uh, he uh, found out that his grandmother was laying on a Jewish cemetery. Now, if you are buried on a Jewish Mm -hmm. cemetery, you are Jewish. There's no way. So my father went to this rabbi and asked, hey, listen, um, what does that mean? And the rabbi was like, that means that you're Jewish. I mean... Hmm. you could come to synagogue today and we would accept you as one of our own. That's what it means. This is irrefutable Hmm. proof that your maternal line is Jewish. Turns out it goes all the way back to Italy. They Hmm. were prominent prominent synagogue members. I'm dying to go there one day. I still haven't been there. Hmm. But it's in Trieste and Padua in Italy. And they are still there in in the cemeteries. So what this means, he's Jewish and he had this, I don't know what kind of experience uh, and with that vision and said, everybody, we're moving to Israel. So in 1987, when I was five years old, five, six years old, we all packed our bags and moved to Israel. My mother, there's a small little thing that I should tell about my mother. My mother has... Um, has a reality distortion field. She she thinks she is in a different reality than everybody else. Um, I suspect that she's that something is going on with her that went untreated. Let's put mm. it that way. Um, but she lives in a complete different reality than mm. us kids live. So she is convinced that she is Jewish too. Okay. But the problem is Indonesia is the biggest Muslim nation in the world. <laughs> it's like very mm-hmm. unlikely. There's there is uh there is a form of Hinduism, which is a barbaric term to encapsulate the entire Hindu religion, but there is a form of that. There is Christianity, Protestant Christianity, and Catholic Christianity, and there's Islam in there. The Christianity that came in there is very colonial in nature. Mm. Understanding that my grandfather worked for the government, it is very likely that my mother is Christian from birth and that Mm. she knows Muslim traditions. Mm. So whenever she said, oh, no, I remember that we had this feast and this feast, I'm like, I'm pretty certain that you're remembering that you were with your Muslim friends. Just just saying. <laughs> um, but anyway, it doesn't matter because in 1987, they moved to Israel and she went to the most uh, orthodox synagogue and became Jewish. And to become mm. Jewish is not like Christianity where you say, yeah. ah, Jesus come thing. to my heart, let's go. Yeah, it's a whole thing. So we all went to a pretty orthodox uh, religious school and got our Torah lessons in. We never talked about Jesus anymore. 
it was very strict mm. <laughs> Jewish um, for a long period of time within that it's funnily enough called a coming out time <laughs> so coming out as Jewish um, you you live as an orthodox person so we we went to synagogue like I said we went to mm -hmm. Jewish school but also no electricity on Saturday all those things and then after a certain time she was officially accepted within Judaism which meant that my two brothers and I also officially got accepted right. into Judaism by default through the maternal line. Unfortunately, right. though, in the Netherlands, they don't circumcise. So we had to get circumcised at a later age. And I was seven oh. at that time. Ooh. Yep. Yep. At least I was, uh, I was under total anesthesia, like general anesthesia. My oldest brother was local. <laughs> oh, <God>. oh. <laughs> Oof. Mm. Oof. <laughs> Exactly. But that's kind of like what I mean with inconsistent because in 1992, we moved back to the Netherlands. And guess what? They went back to that Pentecostal commune. So there's that. Eventually, they left that commune. They went to a, like a local CAMA church, which I think they have in America as well. And uh, and, and that's that. I, I left. I didn't live there anymore since I was 14. And in my head, I was Jewish because my formative years, I was mm -hmm. going to synagogue and Orthodox school. But for my brother, ask the same question. My brother is four years older. Ask the same question. And he's like, no, we were raised Christian. So mm -hmm. it's a completely different experience just based on that four years difference and where we had our formative years. Yeah, I'm just... I feel confused <laughs> by hearing all of that. And and I had a fairly chaotic upbringing as well. So like, it, it makes sense to me, but yeah. Um, you know, I think you and I share the experience of moving a bit growing yeah. up. Um, but you have the added, I don't know if baggage is the right word, but the added complication of yeah. Yeah. two different religions and also the a pretty strict form of both of them <laughs> yes exactly as in no doctor you get anointed with oil if you're sick um in the pentecostal commune yeah so your your body was not well taken care of no no <laughs> mm. no i mean this this was inevitably coming up too in this in this interview. There's also sexual abuse mm. during that time. So big CW in front of your mm -hmm. although I think all your episodes are uh pretty hefty on content warnings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so no, not only was it not well taken of, it was also taken advantage of. Mm. Um all that being said. It just put it all in perspective. The first 14 years of my life that I was with my parents is just one one big chunk of trauma. So mm -hmm. during that time, the sexual abuse happened. During that time, I experimented for the first time with, with what my gender could be until 
until I was 14 and I would have a grossed out response to trans mm. and gay people. Mm. That's how, how hard that was beaten into me. Um, uh, even though all my dreams were me being a woman. And when I, mm. you know, <laughs> it's like, it's not like my body and my, my psyche could, could, uh, could be fooled or so. Uh, and the war in in Israel between eighty seven mm. and ninety two. I was in Israel, so that was also the time that um, Saddam Hussein thought it was a good idea to throw some rockets at Israel. So mm. we had to flee, put on gas masks um, because there was the danger that those mm. rockets were gas filled, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. All I'm saying this is a pretty big chunk of my life that I'm looking back at. Wow. I'd be hard pressed to find good memories, but if I do find those good memories, I cherish them extremely well. Like they are mm. <laughs> important. Mm. Yeah. What? What is a positive memory from that utterly chaotic, hectic time? <laughs> positive memories is, you know. My parents buying a Commodore 64. If you're not from 1981, you probably have no clue what I just said. But it's a it's a very early version of a console uh, mm. for video games. Yeah. Mm. I mean, laced with trauma because my brother and I tried to sneakily play it when we were told not to. And then we were chased down with sticks. That memory comes up as well, but I do remember, wow, video games for the first time, you know, like late 80s. Mm. Um, it, it, it was very cool. Um, I have good memories about my friends, like lots of friends. I always hung out with girls. It was so prominent that even my report card noted it as a concern Misha's mm -hmm. a happy kid but he at that time is playing a lot with girls um so mm -hmm. sure <laughs> i have very good good memories of my girlfriends um growing up mm -hmm. so those things and specifically one of them i still see when we move to to the netherlands i still see her um mm. online that is but see her kids grow up and it's mm. funny because my name is mish but that's not my biological name it's the name that she and a lot among her mm. other people they use that name mish is a name that they chose to mm. call me because my oldest brother is one of the people that sexually abused me and my mm. oldest brother is also the one that came up with michelle which is my birth name and that's a big reason why it had to go. Not because I transitioned. It had to go because he's the person mm. that came up with that name. And my friends were the ones that called me Mish. Yeah. Is uh, Michel a boy's name then? In the Netherlands, yes. The way it's okay. spelled. Like, yeah. like, um, like Michael, I'm going to guess is... Yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. a pretty common name. So if you are Michelle with an E, then it's Michelle. You pronounce the E at the end. But Michelle is predominantly a male name. 
in in the Netherlands. Yeah. Yes. Mm, yeah. I Yeah, there's just a lot of I just I, I'm seeing this body just sort of buffeted around. Like, you know, you it was physically moving around, it was not um being taken care of like health wise it was being yeah. sexually abused um well why am i using it she was being sexually abused uh and and also you were you know finding this disgust response to your own gender and to yes. transness um yeah I'm understanding more and more why you ran away. <laughs> yes. Um, and also you talking about your mother's, um, I think you use the phrase like reality distortion. Yeah. And your own mental health experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much of me that my mother also has, like that I somehow took over, whether it's genetic or whether mm. it's, you know, I have seen her do this. Mm. Like my relationship with food, for example, complete different topic, but I just had my <laughs> nutritionist mm. and I talked about it this morning, is that I am, I am an emotional eater, which manifests itself in not stopping when I'm full. And specifically eating bad things for me after I've already had a full meal and then not stopping. So mm. buy a small bag of kettle chips or a big bag of kettle chips. It does not matter. I will finish it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that, that hurts. And then I would say things like, oh, I just want a couple of more bites for the taste. And my wife confronted me with that the other day. She said, you always say, you always say, because I told her, you need to help me, please. I don't want to overeat. I don't want to be an emotional eater. I want to be a, an eater that is doing this from a uh, fully conscious mm. uh, way. And then she said, yeah, I just know exactly what you say. Whenever you are about to overeat, you always say, I just want a couple more bites for the taste, which is a Dutch expression for the smack means mm. for the taste, but it's not an actual English expression. So that's why mm. it, it was like something that Kim, my wife remembered. And she's like, why do you say that? I'm like, Oh my, everything. My mother has mm. a terrible relationship with food. My mother says that. Oh, Oh, Mish, go out and buy French fries just for the taste. Oh, let's let's do this just for the taste. Or, you know, already had a full meal and then still eating something just for the taste. And I'm like, what? Mm. What? And you can see those things, you know, how we as kids say, we're never going to be like my, <laughs> my parents. Oh, I am so like my mother. I am so like my mother. And even with those things, that the mentally unhealthy things, I am so like my mother. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just for the taste. I, I think I just like 
that phrase. I think it's such a helpful <laughs> phrase. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm on an elimination diet right now. And cause I, I have some digestive stuff and also like skin, like skin issues and, um, also have just been eating terribly for a while. And so mm-hmm. my body, like my stomach is, it's not feeling bad. It's just feeling weird now. I'm like, what is this? Right. What is this experience? And, I, and I've had this before, like when I was having really bad acid reflux. And so one of the treatments for that is not overeating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my body was just like, oh, this is what this feels like to not overeat. Yes, exactly. To actually, and noticing hunger and no, noticing hunger coming up and it's really easy to get out of the mindful sort of way of eating because that's sort of our old patterns, but yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. It's very, it's a lot Mm -hmm. of work. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm tracking, tracking my food, not as in macros for a workout. I'm literally tracking my mood when I'm eating. Mm -hmm. Never done that until I had this nutritionist said, okay, can you tell me how you feel after the meal and how you feel about the meal? Mm. Yes. No, I definitely noticed that from an outcome from how my mother's relationship with with food was. My mother was also super aggressive. So that's another thing. Both of them, but my mother was more, my father was more responsive aggressive not like responsible like responsive uh, would come up reactive my, reactive thanks okay. my father was more reactive mm-hmm. in his aggression my mother was just aggressive mm. it would come up and it was always irrational and um i remember how long it took me to finally deal with that mm. like i would go to treatment centers i've I've been um i've been in a psych ward for 18 months of which uh of which the majority was inpatient and i told them that my problem is aggression but in the entire time that i was at the psych ward it never manifested Mm. itself because it only manifests itself with people that are extremely close with me they see me go completely completely full anger modes as in Mm. i jump out of the window Mm. while the window is closed as in like glass shatters everywhere they see a person without clothes outside completely covered in blood screaming that's what i'm talking about with my irrational over-the-top aggression Mm. and that that slow down every time because i was talking about it but nobody ever saw it so it was not helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is this is when you were a teen yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, on, up until five years ago this this lasted mm-hmm. a long time not not in the sense that i jumped through windows anymore that was mm-hmm. like until my 20s but i definitely adopted that from my mom so so but for me, it was confrontation, mm. the way it ended. I remember the first confrontation I had was when I divorced uh, 
when I got divorced with my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was upstairs with her sister and I was screaming like it was happening, mm-hmm. right? I started screaming. I started throwing things. I started breaking mm-hmm. things. And my ex-wife's sister ran downstairs. It was one of those living room is upstairs mm-hmm. and entrance is downstairs kind of kind of houses. And and she yells up. She says, Mish, Mish. And I have a moment of calmness and I turn around and she said, Mish, please stop. I'm like, what do you mean, please stop? She said, I'm scared. Mm. And I'm like, what the fuck? You're scared of me? I'm so sorry. And I walked out. I never came back anymore. I realized that her sister did something that my ex-wife was never capable of doing. Mm. Um all, all, only good thoughts towards my ex-wife, for the record. But our relationship was very toxic. And um, I was very aggressive. She was too. But we're not talking about her. We're talking about me. I was very aggressive. And, mm. and um, her response to that was always more aggression. So we were mm. in this loop. And I just realized how incompatible we were when she was not able to express that one little thought hey i'm scared right now so it it really put me into an uber dimension of oh my my behavior all these years have scared Mm. people it's not about me it's not about woe is me they triggered me and yada 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 and afterwards i have to clean myself up from all the Mm. blood all of a sudden it became about other people that were scared and i did not want to make other people scared Mm. and the second one was when I worked on it very hard and the aggression would come sporadically. But if it would come, it would still be very, very intense. It would Mm. still be breaking things. It would still be screaming from the top of my lungs. Mm. And and we had a similar moment. My wife, who is capable of saying things, I asked her straight, right, right in her face, like, are you afraid of me? She said, yes. And it just dawned on me that screaming at a person... Even though I don't touch them, even though I don't throw things at them, is still emotional abuse. I was emotionally abusing my current wife. And that's overwhelmed me so much that I'm like, listen, I am a person who's been abused in many, many, many ways, right? Mm. By family members, by friends. And here I am. Here I am emotionally abusing the person I mm. love most. That's when it stops. Mm. So I, I would say I'm still man every now and then. But ever since that moment, it never came out like like that anymore. And uh, I'm, I'm just sharing mm. this part of the story because this is not the conversations that I could have with my parents parents i wish that my parents would spare me this long journey of trying to get to that point until i'm what 35 and finally realize huh Mm. (laughs) let's do something about this this is terrible and still let me let me just tell you the gravity about this being very honest and transparent here let me tell you the gravity about this 
if something happens, so we're five, six years after this incident with, with my wife. If something happens in the house that would trigger me back in the days, mm. my wife still tenses up mm. just for a second, but it's still an imminent response of, oh, here it's coming. Mm. So speaking about the relationships with your bodies, right? Speaking about mm. the relationship with your temper and everything. I I wish those things would have been taught mm. to me much earlier. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you were not given any sort of template or sort of emotional regulation. In fact, you were given the opposite. You were given emotional I... dysregulation. This is how you do it, Mish. If things frustrate you, you scream your lungs out. <laughs> it's terrible, right? And uh, and and now that I have kids, mm. I'm even more painfully aware of it. Like my son saw a little bit of it, and he would just run away. Mm-hmm. He's like, whoa. <laughs> Of course he would run away, but it took him a while. Now he doesn't remember. I asked him, do you remember that your email was like screaming? It's like, yeah, but also no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My daughter never, never witnessed that. So you you think about how you model that for your kids because how it was modeled to me, right? Mm. Oof. I just want my kids to get those templates, even though I'm not able to give them hmm. the perfect upbringing, obviously. At least give him that template of like, hey, if you have frustration, you gotta you gotta talk about it. You gotta let people know. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. From Pentecostal Christians to aggressive Mish, that's um that was quite the journey there, mm-hmm. Eden. <laughs> yeah, no, I thank you so much for sharing. I, you know, I think it's much easier for people to share ways that they have been traumatized and hurt than to talk about ways that they have traumatized or hurt someone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, and also feel a sense of hope where you said like this this has been my behavior and now my behavior is different um i think i think it's very easy uh to view a lot of these things as unchangeable mm-hmm. um and i've said this uh, maybe i guess in my last interview that i did but I'm a big believer in that everybody is redeemable and everyone yeah. has the ability to to change and there's hope for everyone, even if that's not, you know, even with people that we are like, no, those people have done such horrible things that there is absolutely nothing good that can come yeah. out of that. Um, I'm a yeah, yeah. big believer in that. And so I, I love to hear stories like this um yeah yeah i agree and 
And also, you know, I, I recognize like in me, like I, I didn't grow up with anything being thrown, um, nothing like that, but I did grow up with quite a bit of yelling going on and feeling frightened, uh, as a child. And, and of course we never quite, uh, leave behind that child self. And so when you said that your wife, like still will respond, uh, tense up, I, I just, I resonated with that experience. Um, yes, yes. It makes you think about if we can truly understand the consequences of our behavior, but then truly, truly, right? Mm -hmm. People told me all the time that they were afraid. People told me all the time that it was a little bit intense. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's the way I am. Mm -hmm. But it's the intention behind and the moment when people say it, like when my ex-wife's sister, that moment the intentional moment, I am afraid of you right now. Not like, not afterwards. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was pretty, that was pretty scary. You know, at this moment, I am running away from you. Mm -hmm. I'm doing everything in my power to tell you, Mish, I'm afraid. Yes. I wish we could normalize that. Mm. Where we can, where we can openly, where we can openly e express what people's actions do to us. I mean, especially walking through life now as a woman. Last Tuesday, I was picking up five guys for my wife. <laughs> I got to have rest in the store. Mm. And I was about to say, do you have any idea how uncomfortable your behavior is making me right now? But I knew better because I didn't want to end up in a ditch. Mm. So I wish it would normalized mm. because, because if that person doesn't matter what kind of a bully that person was that harassed me, well, it was a group, doesn't matter what kind of bullies they were. Do they really, would they really answer the question, do you enjoy making people feel afraid with yes? I cannot imagine that they would wholeheartedly say yeah totally that's my jam mm. it's hard for me to imagine that people like that exist and and again like like you said the hope in redeemability of every human being because i believe that behind that bully mm. is a little kid mm. as well you know i remember I was working with someone once and they, they were in a, well, as we're speaking about fear and anger, like very fearful space and, and had a, a knife on them. And I was like very cautious and very careful. And I decided I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say like, I am afraid. Mm. I am afraid of you. Uh, yeah. Could you please put the knife down? I am afraid. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I I don't want you to be afraid of me. And right? he put it down. Um, and I, And that was because I knew that person. And I was also aware that what he was experiencing was fear. 
Um, I also knew that I was not the person he was afraid of, (laughs) you know, a lot of things that I knew, which made it so that that was something I could do. I also knew there was an exit right behind me in case that went very poorly. (laughs) So like, (laughs) I was aware of all these things before I said that. Um, Exactly. But, you know, something I think about a lot is, you know, I, I don't have a good sense of how to interact with anger, my own anger, mostly my anger has gone inward and I harm myself and just like emotionally, like your body just starts to have problems when all your anger is going inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I recognize this, these feelings of rage that come up in me with nowhere to go. <laughs> like, and, um, right. and so there is such anger is such an unwieldy emotion. We don't have a lot of normalized spaces for it, which is why I go and box. Um, but like, let's go. <laughs> we need more. We need more spaces for that. Of like, how do you appropriately show anger? Are there appropriate ways of yelling? Are there like things of like showing that without it being like causing someone to be afraid of you harming someone whatever else it is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah exactly exactly Uh, i uh i wish i wish i had answers here of how we could normalize things but i'm a big proponent of normalizing a lot of things like normalizing talking about sex normalizing (laughs) talking about gender uh so i say those things because i know that it's at least better than not talking about those Mm. things. Obviously mission failed with my parents not talking about, about my gender. Mm. Obviously it failed with my parents not talking about my sexual orientation. So it didn't Mm. even work. (laughs) I'm still, I still transitioned. um, And I'm very happy. So Yep. If my kids want to express themselves in any way, if my kids want to have questions that I think that they're too young for, I just do my best, as uncomfortable as I am about certain things, Mm. to have the conversation with them. Mm. Um, Because not having it is worse. So having it without any tools is not great, but it's better than not doing anything. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I have so many, I have so many questions. I'm trying to gauge which ones to ask. Um, Well, I I think I was curious about your experiences being a mother now and the switch of being a father to a mother and also your mother was not the easiest person to be around and there was reality distortions over it. There was anger and you've had your own like struggles with reality and things like that. Like, yes, that's a massive like question to ask, but uh, yeah, give it a shot. (laughs) Yeah. Oof. Thinking about the distortions of reality, maybe that's a good start mm. because because 
I have had episodes in my life, throughout my life, where I am so in despair that I don't know where I am. Mm. So I I don't know what it is. My therapist thinks I'm overthinking it and um, that these are one-offs. But um, they they worry me definitely. I mean, <laughs> I I think uh, we we had a conversation about this a couple of months ago mm-hmm. about that. I woke up and I had no clue what was going on because I had a dream, and in that dream I was being raped. And I woke mm-hmm. up and my wife tried to comfort me, and I'm like. Who are you? It was dark, just for the Mm. record. (laughs) Who are you? Don't touch me. And I ran away to the corner of the room. And it took me a long time to get back to reality. Mm. So, sheesh. Sheesh, Mish. Sheesh, Mish. (laughs) Mish rhymes with keys, sheesh. (laughs) Thinking about those those moments, I had that more when I was younger. Um, I had multiple moments when I was young. It, this was just a long time. Like, as in, I've not had an experience like that since early 20s. So, like, mm. I, I'm saying almost 20 years that I not had that experience. Mm. So, again, my, my therapist was like, ah, Mish, it's a one-off. There was a lot of things going on. You had a terrible dream. Everything was set up for you having a response like that. And you were like mm. half asleep. You got to put everything in perspective. So I hope she's right. Mm. I hope she writes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were even saying now that you feel comfortable in your body, mm-hmm. these anxieties and this experience can have come up because you've been white knuckling and you've been not dealing yeah. with that shit. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was also... Uh, a running theory with the other therapists of like, now you're not white knuckling. Now you're finally in your body. Now you finally have a good relationship with your body. I mean, think about it, right? I put on yoga pants and I don't have to tuck. It's a Mm -hmm. small thing, but I don't have to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't get dysphoria from putting on yoga pants anymore. I don't get dysphoria from peeing anymore. Just mm. think about all those moments, which you obviously do think about, all those moments that give you dysphoria. There are like hundreds of my, many moments a day. Mm. So I don't have them anymore. Mm. So my body is yelling for attention right now. Thinking about the dysphoria of being a father exactly like mm. one of one of the questions that you just asked like how is the transition of moving from being a father to a mother that's great absolutely mm. but the big caveat here is that another thing that's another thing that's used to cause dysphoria and now i'm just a mom mm. now my daughter every now and then accidentally calls me mama instead of ima and then she said, oh, sorry, I meant the other mama. And then she gets confused. And <laughs> that's hugely affirming for some reason. Mm. <laughs> so 
So all those things that that go away, being a father was really hard for me. I never wanted to be the father role. I never wanted to be the athletic dad that went on (laughs) doing baseball with his son. Those roles that were expected of me, those man groups that I was in in the Bible church, those marriage conferences that told me Mm. how our roles were supposed to be. All that shit's bullshit. Let's 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 talk about that <laughs> right there, right? But they they helped me. Uh, they aided. Let me say it like that. They aided in the dysphoria. Mm. Um, every time I felt like a dad, I felt dysphoria because I knew it was not who I was. And I'm not talking about stereotypical mom mm. roles like nurturing or whatever. Because I guess Kim and I both are not stereotypical moms, besides that I always have snacks ready for my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you need a Band-Aid? I got one in my purse. Um, you know, maybe that's stereotypical, but for the rest, we are nothing, we're not stereotypical moms at all. But I am a mom. Mm. I am a mom and I'm feeling it embodied more and more in my body. I'm feeling it more and more that I wake up and like, I'm a mom instead of I have to take on that role. It was never taking on a role, but sometimes it was an active decision that I had to make to, um, to, to tell myself, you're a mom, you're a woman, you're a beautiful daughter of God, etc., etc. So all those things. Yes. I think, I, I just think that. Like I said at the beginning of this interview, this is a new journey. And I don't look forward to having another episode where I don't know where I am. But mm. if that's what it takes mm. to start listening to my body, mm. then then hooray, right? It's mm. those small things like acid reflux when you just <laughs> talked about. It's the easiest to ignore. You just take omeprazole and you're done. <laughs> But that's not listening to your body. That's just mm. dumping some medicine in you. <laughs> uh, well, and also because I was on omeprazole for a while, but they want you to get off of it because it eats up all your calcium. And I think it can cause other problems, but, um, yeah. and calcium is really important. Uh, specifically, I think in female bodied people, calcium is important. Yes, um, yes. So it's just sort of, um, putting it forward a little bit like of like uh putting off the time when your body has whatever problem um so yeah i've definitely experienced that thing of oh my body as i said with the pain of like my body is telling me something and i am royally pissed that they chose this time (laughs) to communicate (laughs) with me it's inconvenient um Oh, but yes. important, but important. Um, so important. I was curious, you know, talking about reality and reality distortion. Um, the topics of mental illness, specifically um, psychosis or like not 
let's just say the phrase um not believing in reality or mm-hmm. uh all of this has some pretty messy relationship we'll say with transness and the way that both mental health and just yeah being trans yeah. is is viewed as mental health um yeah i'm familiar with that a little bit and that i'm gonna guess that you are even more so yeah i mean it's been see mish you are mentally unstable you're not actually trans mm. and i have very i have very short words for that is that my transness my transition has never been a crutch for happiness i transitioned 10 years ago i went 11 years ago by now i went to a um i went to a a psychologist in netherlands and i told him listen i'm a woman i want to transition we started the entire process and then i told him hey we gotta pause this because i got some issues come up uh through emdr and we were doing also at the same time of course um (laughs) and i just want to deal with that first so for some people dealing with their mental issues as in their transitions body if you will mm. is is a good idea right for me not i had to deal with those mental pains first mm. and uh maybe maybe now i look at it in retrospect like oh wow it would have been handy if i was not white knuckling because you know mm. so i don't even have to answer for that but but what i do have an answer for is like i am a prime example who has been in therapy since i was 14 i've taken care of all of my shit i have asked myself the hard questions mm. i have gone into therapy for specific sessions like even the example of like accepting that that emotional abuse can come out of me and i have had therapy sessions where i with somebody that's been sexually abused so many times i had to come to the conclusions like wow how many bed partners did i have that also did not want to have sex with me but also Mm. did it because they thought it was expected of them Mm. how many people have i hurt sexually and that's something that i would never be able to find out it's not like i'm gonna message all my bed party hey how 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 did that feel because if it was a traumatic event for them they don't ever want to see me i don't know Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. so it i've did i've done the hard work so to say that my transness is just an outcome of mental health or trauma or trauma is the opposites i would argue that my trauma was a uh, was because of my transness mm. and i'm not trans because of my trauma mm. i would say that the way i behaved the way i presented myself you know even with the small simple things like my brother was more uh, one of my brother uh was more boyish than me and i was less boyish and i got picked out Mm. to be sexually abused by the older brother not saying that i was an easier victim i don't want to i want to that's not the narrative that i'm going for but i am i'm saying that 
because I was trans, my parents rejected me twice as hard as they did with my oldest brother. Because my oldest brother, who 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 sexually abused me, was also always in trouble with my parents. But I was twice as much in trouble because of my transness. So I would argue that the mother complex that I have right now, that the anger that my parents have shown me, that the sexual abuse that has been happening to me, all of that has to do with my gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anything, it's the exact opposites. Mm-hmm. Trauma does not cause transness. Obviously, the APA and the W path have written extensively about that. Um, so this narrative that you and I are very, very intimately familiar with mm-hmm. because it's been thrown at us so many times, sometimes I just wish to say, just Google it. <laughs> just Google it. Like, Use of course peer reviewed journals, but yes, please <laughs> do 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 some research. That's not how trauma works. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a weird. That's a, that's even weirder to think about. Oh yeah, Miss, you've been sexually abused, so obviously you feel like a woman. I, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, these are of course questions I've asked myself. You know. Is my mental health, is my trauma, is that why I'm trans? Is that why I shouldn't be trans or like trans isn't a thing because of that? Or, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, if I fix something, if I heal these problems, then I won't be trans anymore. Um, and, and I still ask myself those questions. And I, I think a lot of the way that I've sort of interacted with it is a little different from yours, but I guess similar in the end of, I can't separate out all of these different aspects of who I am and say that they don't like, yeah, they definitely affect each other. They, we just can't not like, we're not completely compartmentalized human beings. Mm. So maybe this does influence that, but like, so does everything else. Like there, it's not like this affected me more than, whatever else like the fact that i'm short like you know um all these things affect that journey and kind of also like so what in some ways of like it's here like yeah um so sort of messy way of, of interacting with it but i do find it interesting you you talk with a lot of facts, um, you know, uh, oftentimes like referencing this or that and, and also commenting on when you're saying something that's off the cuff and not proven in any way, which I, I find interesting, like very, you know, you've, you've listened to my podcast. I talk about how like my, my podcast is not about facts, like it's about people's experiences. Yeah. And so I find it interesting. I think, perhaps your way of dealing with chaos and also perhaps your way of dealing with like people lobbying these attacks is like, I'm going to know my shit <laughs> you know, <laughs> to defend or, or yeah. ju- not, not even to defend, but just like, I, I got that covered. Yeah. 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 It, it also comes from a, uh, 
hey, I used to be that person that would just would just throw out absolute statements. Mm. And sometimes they were founded, but sometimes they were not. And uh, when people close to me said, you're an absolute statement kind of person, I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? No, I don't want to be that person. What do you mean? So I've done a lot to clean up. So that, that's one part of it. Yeah. The other part of it is um, my growing frustration with today's polarization. Mm. and um where i i think facts don't matter when it comes to experiences right um i enjoy dancing that that's an experience it doesn't have to be a statement about dancing is the best thing ever or i am a good dancer even nothing matters my experience is that i love dancing mm. so there's there's that big part of my life where i don't care about facts at all but when it comes to specific things that damage the world and are just so unfounded it drives me absolutely nuts mm. so combine that to the the fact that i observe those things and make absolute statements about it and then fast forward to 41 year old mish and I have 17 papers with every absolute statement that I make. Mm. And if I don't have it, I make it known. Because sometimes it's just fine to say shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, so especially when it comes to things that have a lot of um, impact on our life. I'm talking about our transness, of course. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about how... The groomer mentality is mm. has gone bonkers. I had a conversation with a queer woman, and she said, "Yeah, no, the the queer the queer uh, the groomer thing was a thing twenty years ago." Yes, but it has never peaked. Like, yes, I was not out twenty years ago, so mm. that's good information to know, right? But it has never, it has never been said to me in my face mm. you know a couple weeks ago make a make, make a reel on 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 tiktok about about how we should normalize talking about sex with children you're a groomer no, just because i want to talk about sexuality and boundaries but but there is proof you know there is absolute proof mm -hmm. i work with a very respected scientists on specifically this topic there is overwhelming proof that if you talk about boundaries with children they actually have the language mm. to talk about their boundaries because if somebody is doing something bad with these kids and it's an adult it's typically well that's an adult they know what they're doing but if this child knows from an early age no that's not what people are supposed to do when they have the language for it, when they have access to other adults where they can say, hey, this happened to me, mm. that is when healing can happen. This is this is not debatable. So the groomer, the groomer language that, that is being thrown at me because A, I'm trans and B, I want to 
this I'm a very passionate advocate for mm. something is coming out in a couple of months. I'm a very passionate advocate about talking about sex, normalizing talking about sex. So I'm a double groomer. I'm a groomer because I'm trans and all trans mm-hmm. people are groomers. I don't know if you remember that Michigan barber that uh, told people that are not men or female to go to a dog groomer because she would mm-hmm. not want to do that. The thing is that I made a reel about that this week. Mm-hmm. The thing that I didn't mention in my reel is that this same barber, the same hairdresser, um, claimed that the plus in LGBTQI plus stands for MAP or minor attracted mm-hmm. person. In other words, pedophile. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the fuck? How did you make that jump? What? Who is telling these stories? This is objectively wrong. And I'm very comfortable making absolute statements about that because that's so not true. <laughs> yeah. There's no way that pedophiles fit within our alphabet soup. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with you? Why why are you in an echo chamber? Do do your diligent research because it is one thing if you don't know something and it's a whole other thing if what you are claiming has consequences. Here's an example. In uh in the 1820s there was a guy called Washington Irving who wrote a book mm. called something the exploration of Christopher Columbus, something like that. I can't remember the exact title. Um, But in his book, there is a claim that he makes. He says that um, Christopher Columbus came back from his travels and he told geologists, guess what? The earth is not flat. And the the geologists all went crazy. They were like saying, hey, how could you say that the earth is not flat? Blasphemy. Do you really expect us to believe that people on the other side of the world walk upside down? You're stupid. Okay, fast forward to today. I I I I want I want to challenge every single listener and you as well mm-hmm. to ask this question to at least 5 people. How many people today believe that people from the old world as in like America as the new world? Europe and the rest is the old world. How many people used to believe that the earth was flat? I'm I'm telling you that's above nine out of ten. Mm-hmm. The majority of people believes that people used to believe that the earth was flat and that Columbus's discoveries have made sure it has have ensured that people knew that the earth mm-hmm. is a globe. This is not true. 4th century BC, there was a guy called Aristothenes who calculated the circumference of the earth. And he did that pretty, pretty accurate. Mm. He noticed when the sun is straight above one well, and then he went to a town over and he calculated. He just used basic trigonometry Mm. to see, okay, when the sun at noon is above that well. And then he did, again, basic trigonometry, did it a couple of times. He was pretty darn close. I'm, I'm, I don't know the exact number. It was within a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand miles. We were like, wow, hundreds of years before Christ, people already knew mm. that the earth was round. But this, this guy 
thought it was so good to make sure that the new world was viewed as the people who mm-hmm. are knowledgeable right. and that the old world was not. Okay, so this is not super damaging. Yes, okay, it feeds into a colonial perpetuation, which I'm also very mm. <laughs> passionate about, but it's not really damaging. People can believe that and it won't affect their world. It's not like, oh, now people are going to suffer because I believe that people used to believe that the earth was flat. That's an example of Mm. a a very uninformed thing that a lot of people believe. Mm -hmm. Now, compare that to the groomer narrative. Mm. If what you believe has consequences, you need to triple check it. Mm. If I say... If I say all white people um, shoot at least one person, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> come up with something. <laughs> That's a damaging claim. You got to triple check that. Not, not, not just scientists should check their sources and peer review it, but I'm saying everyday people. Mm. If your claim is damaging, so the claim that transgender people are groomers, Mm-hmm. If it's damaging, you need to triple check it. And not from the same sources. You need to go to outside sources. Yeah. Don't ask, don't ask Ben Shapiro and then Matt Walsh and then Donald Trump. That that doesn't fly. That's not three different sources. It's uh, <laughs> three different people within the same system. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no. Firm I'm, and absolute statements. <laughs> I'm just I I think I've grown up with such a sense of oh, you're queer or you're trans, that means that you sexually abuse children or that you want to sexually abuse children. Right, right. Um and are there people out there who are queer or trans who have done that? Yes. It is not the majority and it is not a um, cause and effect. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the opposite is happening right now. So you have a couple of very influential uh, TikTokers and Instagrammers that are putting pastors uh, in the spotlight that's abused children. And mm-hmm. they're trying to make the exact same points as and the anti-trans community is trying to do. See, there's a hundred pastors or faith leaders that have abused children or a thousand. Mm-hmm. Or oh, for all I care, it's a million. It's terrible. That's what it matters, right? But now they're putting them in a spotlight as if, as if almost claiming pastors are by nature mm-hmm. prone to child abuse it's also wrong yeah i am not afraid to call out my own community it's also wrong that's not that's not what we're doing here we can always come up with a what if comment or have you look at that group comment but that's not what we're doing here i don't think that is helpful and that kind of fits in within my bridge builder non-alienation mentality of course Mm -hmm. but i think that there's that there's a group of faith leaders that fucks up and there's a group of faith leaders that does great work there Mm. that's a nuanced statement um but to say that faith leaders are child molesters is the same as saying trans people are child molesters yeah 
you were bringing up the William Irving thing mm -hmm. of like making Washington. it sound. Yeah. Sorry, Washington Irving. Yes. Yes. Okay. Did I say William? I meant. No. I meant no. You, you did. I. Oh. Okay. I misremembered <laughs> it. Um. You know that people believed the Earth was flat until Christopher Columbus, um, and doing that because you want to sort of puff up like new, like the new people yeah. as opposed to like the older times people. And I'm just thinking about how familiar that is to me of groups saying, Oh no, we are the educated ones. We are the smart mm -hmm. ones. And, and this, um, like I would say actually that, that, uh, liberal people progressives actually are the most guilty of this currently of like, mm -hmm. we, we have, we have gone to university. We have, we are educated people and we need to root out these uneducated mm. and we don't use the word exactly, but barbaric, like, like we need to, to root that out. And so yeah, yeah. I found that familiar as well. And Hey, like I, my parents have PhDs. Um, I have a master's degree. I I'm quite educated and, you know, definitely skew in that direction. And also I am queer. I am trans. And yeah, I do get frustrated when there is, you know, I, I can go into that bias, but I'm, a, I'm aware that that is a problem of when we yeah. look down and have contempt towards people um, for something like that. Yeah. Always empathy. Right. And it's hard. But I do believe, like, when I came out, the I had the, so many conservative people that I came out to that were nasty. But I also had so much conservative people, Glenn Beck listening conservative people, they were like, nothing weird about this. We love you. Mm -hmm. Let us know how we can call you from now on. I'm like, okay, that's not the stories that we hear. There is this... There is this story going on that they're all bad, but I'm I'm just thinking about you're in a town in the Midwest. Everybody is white because that's the nature of where you live, right? 75% of Americans is white. So it's very like likely that you are growing up in a community where nobody's of color. That that could happen. Or you go to a church that is predominantly white, not because everybody because only white people want to hang out with each other, but because it's the nature of your of your rural community, if you will. I'm thinking about those people. How do they get to learn how to interact with people like us? Mm -hmm. Within the public realm, I have a lot of mm -hmm. uh, patience for that and a lot of empathy for that as well. I know that can Google things, but if you... how e if it's so easy to believe that people used to believe that the earth is flat, mm. how easy is it to believe all the other things? And if nobody talks, if nobody's having a conversation with them, how will they ever encounter a trans person mm. in their life? Mm. It's hard. It's mm -hmm. not our jobs absolutely not our jobs this is not what i'm saying but if we have it in us and we can build bridges i wish other white people would stand up mm 
I, I say white people because there's also a whole colonial perpetuation story going on in the background in my brain mm-hmm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. now. Um, I wish that white people would stand up and go to those places and educate them. However, sometimes it's just great to see a person in real life. How how many places do you go to where you're the only trans person? Um, For me, unfortunately, it happens more more often than not, even though Mm -hmm. all my close friends are queer. So... Even though all my close friends are queer, most spaces that I go to, I'm the only visibly mm-hmm. trans person. There may be people that pass really well. Must be nice. But um, <laughs> mm-hmm. so thinking about that, but also thinking about the 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 story that went on in the background of my mind mm-hmm. of, of of whiteness, I, I have the same feeling about that. So little background here. Indonesia was colonized by the Dutch for hundreds of years. And at some point, missionaries came into Indonesia and they started building schools. Mm. And the people who graduated from those schools became government officials. So there's an observation there to make that Not always, but often, the interests of missionaries and the white colonial force, Mm. their interests aligned. As a matter of fact, you could not become a government official unless you had good education. And who was offering good education? The people that were erasing our Indonesian heritage out of us. Mm. Those were the people that would get government positions. How long? We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years Mm. um, of colonial pasts all over the world where the same process happens, where the white Protestant version and the white Roman Catholic version was preached to those remote villages. So on that topic of of education obviously mm-hmm. i i am finishing up my doctorate i value education very much mm-hmm. but i do also understand that the system that we have learned to do science and the system that we have learned to interact with the world is a colonial system mm-hmm. it's a transphobic system mm-hmm. it's a system that puts men above women I mean, look at look at the people in all progressive cities that run away from Adam Smith, the capitalist inventor, and they run to the other economic guy, Karl Marx, hmm. without understanding that Karl Marx was heavily funded white guy. So we're going hmm. from one colonizer to another. As good as Karl Marx's ideas sound, like... I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to it. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. But I'm saying like how easy we just fall for the colonial way of thinking. Let's just listen to white men Mm. Um, or white people or whiteness or the white narrative or the colonial narrative. Um, I should probably expand my terminology instead of just saying white man. (laughs) Because I do still have... Two little questions left. Um, Go for it. I like to always make sure that I do ask about positive stuff. So 
because we often, it's very easy to talk about the negative and the things that are difficult, but what positive experiences have you had with your body or either memories or things that you experience now? Yeah. So many things, so many things. Um, transitioning has been a blast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember when I got invited to a uh, bachelorette party Mm. and I didn't realize not, not a bachelorette party, like a wedding shower. So not like Mm -hmm. the party, but like the one that you do where you still do gifts, Americans Mm -hmm. with their traditions. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it was amazing. I came in there and I fully thought, because this is a queer couple, I fully thought that men would be there and I was there and it was women only. Mm. And I'm like, oh my everything. I am <laughs> invited here. I am fully seen as a woman. Mm. That same couple got married. Uh I I uh performed their wedding. I ordained their wedding. I mm-hmm. initiated that how do you say that? It's um <laughs> uh, oh, I did their wedding. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> and um Afterwards was the dance party, and I was dancing on my heels in my <laughs> dress. All girls were dancing, and um, this was the first time ever that I danced as a woman. Mm. Amazing, amazing feeling, and the list goes on and on and on. Now I got invited to a women's Bible study. I'm like what mm. <laughs> do i even believe in gendered bible study <laughs> i don't care i got an invite <laughs> to yeah. a women's bible study it's 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 amazing mm. and uh and the same with the makeup of my friends how i was adopted into the jew mom group um i always give a little side note when i say jew moms please don't repeat the word jew moms <laughs> I was I was actually wondering about that. I was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, I probably should use a different word, but we have a group of Jewish moms and we call it the Jew moms. Um we all met on the playgrounds, we all have kids, we all share mom things with each other, and it feels amazing. So mm. You're right. It's very easy to look at all the negative things, but there's so much cool stuff happening. There's so much love, self-love happening right now where I'm finally where I'm finally reaching the point that I'm loving my body, mm. where I'm loving everything about myself, not just small parts like in the beginning I still had dysphoria about my shoulders. I'm like, "Oh, I have such broad shoulders." And now I don't even see it anymore. Mm. Um, or I thought, ooh, size 10 and a half, 11 shoes. That's, that's big. Now I just don't care. I like, I don't even see it. Mm. <laughs> so there's so much acceptance. Um, because I now go through stuff that women go through. Mm. You know, I thought my shoulders was maybe a transition related. Um, mm. a dysphoria related thing but it was just a, an issue that women people in general but yes women go through i'm like oh how do i find shoes with size 11 it's just a 
an issue that any person, any woman goes through. So I don't know, going through daily issues feels surprisingly affirming and euphoric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm very happy where I am right now. We shared some deep shit and some traumatic stuff. And we shared that after my surgery in April, I've, I've had some interesting things happen. But the overarching, arching uh, topic is I feel great. I feel so at home in my body. Mm. Mm. I'll just share this small, this small sort of gender euphoria. When I changed my gender on Facebook, I started getting all of these um, like anti-balding ads, <laughs> which I, I, I'm not on testosterone, like I don't need that. But I just, oh, it just made me feel so good that I exactly. stopped getting lingerie ads. <laughs> Yay, exactly, exactly. Right, but those small things are huge when my my driver's license changed when the photo of my driver's license changed now i'm getting emails with miss mish van essen mm. gendered as fuck they need to stop doing that but i love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great um and then my my last question which is just is there anything else you want to share before we end no, thank you so much for having me on the show. I I am normally on your chair. Um, so I have not been a guest on many podcasts. Mm. So it's kind of fun to see it on this <laughs> end. Like even Riverside, this software that you're using, I'm like, oh, so this is how it looks like for guests. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because... I, you know, I will be on your podcast in the not too distant future and I've never been on someone's podcast. So I'm going to be right oh, there. Uh, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. So, yes. So good. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being open to this. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Absolutely this. Absolutely agree. I mean, I feel like I know you, but having a longer conversation with you about things definitely definitely makes me appreciate you more mm -hmm. thank you see that as a feminal a fe a <laughs> <laughs> I tend to like this question to blah, 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 blah. Um, 